This is an ABC podcast. G'day, it's Clint Jasper with you. It's time to head out on the road with our reporters, meeting the people and visiting the places that make up a big country. This week, the kids are back at school and will join some students who are starting their new school year in a different setting. They're the first high school students to study at a unique nature school in regional New South Wales that has a focus on outdoor learning. We'll meet a family who are marking 100 years of growing grapes and making wine in the Margaret River region of southwest Western Australia, and we'll discover how a couple and their young children have found their ultimate lifestyle business. They're growing earthworms for backyard gardeners and compost systems. It's a varied job with many facets, including protecting their livestock from predators. The cane toads and the birds are your biggest thieves. Especially on the warm nights and the humid nights like we've got right now, a lot of the big fellas will just sort of poke their heads out and go for a bit of a look around. And when they do that, a lot of time the cane toads are waiting for them. So we spend a lot of nights with a bucket and a glove and torch and, yeah, try and minimise those numbers off. We'll hear about that hands-on job farming worms coming up. First today, it's well known that humans and horses can develop quite a special connection, and it's something that longtime horse riding instructor Virginia Turner has seen in her decades teaching people how to work with horses. Reporter Meg Powell dropped in on a lesson at Virginia's property in northwest Tasmania to find out more. Can you flip it back? Yeah. This is Gemma. She's in her 30s, works a job at a factory and enjoys taking weekly horse riding lessons at a new school that's popped up in her local area. I ride horses. Gemma also has Down syndrome and about 18 months ago had barely even touched a horse. Hello, I'm Meg Powell, and I'm chatting to Gemma and her carer Jackie at this riding school on a beautiful property near Wynyard on the northwest coast of Tasmania. Jackie has been working with Gemma for the past eight years and has noticed big changes in Gemma since she started horse riding lessons here about a year and a half ago. Just her confidence grow is amazing, yeah. And like she used to be quite shaky and, you know, getting up on possum and, you know, she's just really confident and... Yeah, not shaky, are you, Gem? Not shaky. No. Yeah, she is very confident and, like, you know, when we go out and have a coffee afterwards, you know, she's quite capable of ordering her own coffee and knowing what she wants. So, yeah, great place. Put it on. Good girl. Now give it the soft brush and give him a... The The effect that spending time with horses has had on Gemma is a familiar story for riding instructor Virginia Turner. She's seen it time and time again in her decades teaching people to ride horses. Virginia and her husband Dennis ran a riding school in Tasmania's south for 20 years. But when the water in their dam dried up, it was time for them to move. Um, We moved up here two years ago from Orielton because this is where it was raining and it wasn't down there and we set up the riding school here. I always had ridden and I'd competed and I wanted to offer people my experience that I had that I could offer them. Today we had someone here called Gemma who has Down syndrome and I understand you have a fair few people that come through who have disabilities. Yes. Have you noticed some sort of benefit of teaching people with disabilities to ride and connect with horses? Oh, absolutely. Gemma's a prime example because when she first came, as Jackie said, she used to really shake and she just even getting on the horse was a big thing. I never thought we'd be trotting. 
but she's really quite balanced and quite, as you saw, she may not rice trot, but she's quite comfortable doing that sit trot. I think that's also a measure of the development in the confidence. And Mari, her mother, noticed a change within three weeks as to Gemma's level of confidence, her response to questioning or anything. She settled down a lot, matured, all that sort of thing because of her relationship with the horse. We've seen that because of Virginia's teaching style. We've said that in other students, especially when they started off as little fellas and she's still got some of those girls now they're in their 30s. And Dennis, um, sounds like Virginia's pretty well got the school covered. What do you actually do around here? Well, <laughs> we'll see all these fences around here, Meg. I did them. <laughs> someone has to do yeah, something. Yeah, someone has to do it. Yeah, I often say my job is to sort of mend things that break and find things that get lost and pick things up that fall over and uh, generally keep away <laughs> unless requested. But no, really, there's a, there's a considerable amount of maintenance required and like with any farm but horses particularly I think because they can be a bit pushy the grass is always green on the other side of the fence. We have two naughty ponies and they keep him fairly busy because <laughs> they spend a lot of time trying to work out how they can get through the fence and yeah. ruin it. Moving a business can you've got to sort of start again almost from scratch and, and build it back up was it a bit of a step back to come up here? Absolutely yeah we were established down there and mm. even though there's more riding schools down there, the bigger population, we had to start at the bottom again. It's just coming to its fore now. It's like we run um, holiday camps. During the year I was getting one and two people and this time we've had both camps are full and it's just slowly building. I'm getting more during the week now, I'm getting more adults. There's a lot of adults who probably wanted to ride as a kid and never got the opportunity. They get to an adult age and they think, oh, it's on my bucket list, I want to ride a horse. Mm. So you take anyone, even if they've never seen a horse before? Absolutely. That's probably our target area. And urban kids who aren't ever going to own their own horse, more so than people with their own horses. Virginia saw the benefit as a young one being able to get out and about with friends mm. and ride a horse, you know, and now she's turned it into a, not only a passionate interest but uh, as a means of income to assist other people in making those same decisions and I think that's very important because it builds their character I mean I've been witness to a lot of Virginia's early students who have now grown up and um, into you know lovely young people um, and uh, they'll tell you a lot of their development was because of the relationship they had with Virginia learning responsibility accountability for their actions um, and and that's has happened by being in touch with horses. Now, we've got to go round. Do you know how to go round? Yeah. That's really good. He likes that, Jimmy. Yeah. yeah. He's a bit good. He's a bit good. He's a bit silly. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? His visa? That's his, um, What's that? his passport. Robert Cordaro and his son Matt are looking over old documents and photos of their family. That's, that's, I think that's Grandma's ticket to Australia. Hello, I'm Kate Stevens. Robert is sharing his family story with me as they reflect on a century of making wine on the same property in the Margaret River wine region of southwest Western Australia. His grandfather, Cesare, an Italian migrant, moved to this region in the early 1920s. More than 100 years ago, the area was very different to the landscape you see today of lush green vineyards, top-rated restaurants and rural spa retreats. It was sort of stepping out into the unknown, really, coming to where there's not the civilisation, like it was just 
bush and that's uh, my grandmother commented all the time about how they come to this bush and the road to Margaret River was only a dirt gravel road. His grandfather had moved to the region to work the land. They come to Australia after the war. There was a lot of people that, that migrated to Australia and he was part of that and he was able to take up the land there and carve it up. Yeah, he, they cleared the, the land and run a few cows and like milked a few cows few pigs it was all about survival they didn't have lots so they they just gradually built from that and like many italian families the cordaros liked their wine but the only way to get it was to make it i think that would have been a very important part of their tradition because they have wine every day if they don't make it they they'd have to they wouldn't wouldn't have it so very important part of their culture and and everyday life there was already vines vineyards here in the area like the Maleri family i think they planted here in yelling up in the 1915 but there was some also like the spanish planted out in Yongarilla up there even earlier than that that was a european tradition where they brought the the vines with them they would have brought them in their suitcases so there wasn't much quarantine then they would have just brought the cuttings with them and planted them. It's a similar story for many European families that migrated to WA back in the early 20th century. Wine journalist Ray Jordan co-authored a book on the history of the Margaret River region. What would happen is that, and it happened with the the first fleet under uh, Captain Sterling, where the cuttings were generally bought from South Africa for that time. But the Europeans, yes, they. my understanding is they probably did put them in their, in their suitcases, uh, might have packed them with a bit of soil and so forth and then brought them over. It accounts for the fact that some of the early varieties they were planting were a little bit obscure. They were varieties that obviously came from parts of the rural uh, areas that they were from, uh, you know, in Italy um, and Spain for that matter. Yeah, they were, they were coming out. Uh, in about from about 1906, I think, uh, both Spanish and Italian. He said some research showed wine was being made in WA even earlier than that. Certainly wine was being produced earlier in the 20th century, but discovered further we dug that the strong indications of wine being produced from grapes planted down in that uh, southwest region, probably from the middle of the 19th century. They apparently used to trade some of the wine that they produced uh, with the American whalers who came past there at that time and uh, they'd have some uh, provisions that they would find useful from uh, these uh, pretty early pioneering settlers. They swapped some wine, which worked quite well. Well, this is the broad accent grand- Grandad had. Uh... Back on the vineyard and Robert Cordaro is inspecting the axe his grandfather used to shape the timber. Yeah, it's quite sharp. Yeah. Still? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 100 years on and the family still owns that original land purchased back in the 20s and then some. Today, the Cordaros not only harvest more than 250 acres of grapes, but have a grazing operation and produce like avocados and pomegranates. They're in full swing of celebrating their 100 years of their family winemaking. Robert says his grandfather would be blown away to see just how far the family and the region has come. I think they would be very impressed and um, it's not something they would have envisaged. Even for the whole region, it's just grown in, in such a way that it'd be hard for anyone, my grandparents, to envisage what's happened in this area. Yeah, that's a good photo. And that's in the early days, like, they didn't have bulldozers, so they ring-barked all the trees 
with an axe so that they die and and I think that's my father on a on a tractor and a rotary hoe working the ground. Robert Cordaro, he was looking through some old family photos as his family marks a hundred years of growing grapes and making wine in the Margaret River region of WA. He spoke to reporter Kate Stevens. And you can read more of Robert's family's story. Just head online to the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash RN. You'll find a big country under the programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you for a big country. Still to come, the high school students who are taking their lessons in the great outdoors as demand grows for nature schooling. And we'll meet the carpenter and kindergarten teacher who've taken to the farming lifestyle, raising small, wriggly little livestock. So we've got these lovely big covers that provide the western sun. Rowan and Ellie Watson couldn't be prouder about having worms, millions of them. Oh, wow, you're scraping back the surface and it is just alive with worms. Yeah, so that's our harvesting technique. We use the food, we keep them at the top, and then from there we can harvest the worms. In 2014, the carpenter and his kindergarten teacher wife were working in Outback Cloncurry when his uncle posed a question that would change the course of their lives. I was down on holidays and he came and said to me, what are you doing when you finish out west? And I said, I don't know. He said, do you want to come grow worms? And I said, you've got to be crazy. That can't be a thing. But it is a thing. And Stephen Watson, an early adopter of commercial vermiculture in Australia, that's worm farming, convinced his nephew that he was serious. And he said at the rate it was growing and he only had a small block so he could only get to a certain size and that was it. So he said, do you want to buy a farm and start growing worms? And so I came home and have a chat with Ellie and we said, well, let's give it a go. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols, and I'm visiting Rowan and Ellie Watson at their worm farm at Stony Creek in southeast Queensland. After deciding to give worm farming a go, the couple moved quickly. Within the year, they'd packed up their lives, scouted for land and settled here on this property, not far from the Woodford Folk Festival site. They started with just nine raised beds. Now they have 138, with recycled tin roofing, shade cloth and sprinklers to keep the worms moist and safe from ever-optimistic predators. The cane toads and the birds are your biggest thieves. Especially on the warm nights and the humid nights like we've got right now, a lot of the big fellas will just sort of poke their heads out and go for a bit of a look around. And when they do that, a lot of time the cane toads are waiting for them. So we spend a lot of nights with a bucket and a glove and torch and yeah, try and minimise those numbers off. Their business, Rural Earthworms, grows reds, tigers and African night crawlers for domestic composting worm farms. We collect all these animal manures. It gets pasteurised so we can burn off any weed seed or any sort of bad pathogens and then we start the composting process and then basically at the right time we can put it into a mixer we mix in lime and cornmeal. We feed our beds every Friday. Harvesting, packing and deliveries take another two days. The family supplies a national company that transports their worms to Bunnings stores throughout northern New South Wales and Queensland. Householders use them to keep kitchen vegetable scraps out of landfill. Composting worms convert organic waste into nutrient-rich garden fertiliser in the form of worm tea and castings or worm poo. Most of your reds and your tigers are normally only about 75 millimetres long whereas your night crawlers can go 150 mil up to sort of 250 if not I have seen bigger. I've seen them as long as my arm. <laughs> Business has boomed spiking during the pandemic. Every week they consistently sell around 150 large and 120 small boxes of earthworms. The last few weeks have been both exciting and intense for the couple. Their uncle retired and 58 new worm beds have been carefully relocated from his farm. 
Mr Watson never imagined that business would get this big. I kind of always just assumed that it would sort of stay as a bit of a hobby to work in with my carpentry, but once it sort of got going and we started getting a lot of beds and that demand was there, we sort of found that, okay, well, it wasn't really worth doing the carpentry anymore. The worms needed the time. So we just sort of, that's when we started investing in more worm beds, more infrastructure, and just trying to keep up with it. And it, it's been great. It's really, especially today, to look around and see all these worm beds in the new areas. Yeah, it's really amazing. They also collect worm castings and bag them for sale to locals. 18 kilos in a large bag and that's enough for about three square meters of garden. Mix it into about that top sort of 10 centimeters of soil because that's your root zone for a lot of your veggies and your flowers. Basically the nutrients from there will spread out. We did a test in one of these bags and it was a year later and it was still fine. It was just put up in the cupboard, out of the sun and yeah, perfect. Ellie Watson manages marketing and orders as well as helping her husband with social media. A lot of people don't even know that worm farmers exist so it's always interesting talking to different people and helping them with their worms and their gardens. And I get to pass all the interesting questions on to Rowan. I call him the worm guru. Earthworms are hermaphrodites which means they have both male and female sexual organs. Your reds and tigers they will have to find a similar size worm so they can't mate with a worm that's not the same size because they won't line up together and when you find a pair of worms they look like someone's tied them in a knot. Being hermaphrodites they both will exchange sperm for their eggs so they've both got eggs both got sperm so they swap and then they go off in their own directions and basically lay their eggs as they travel. African nightcrawler worms, which are also popular as fish bait, can produce cocoons with or without copulation through an asexual reproduction process. The term is parthenogenesis, so they can actually fertilise their own egg. Ellie Watson, what do you like about being a worm farmer? The lifestyle is definitely the best. We get to work from home and it's different. It's a nice break from teaching. And yeah, and it's lovely that we can involve the whole family. And speaking of family, you're expecting <laughs> very soon, hopefully within the next three weeks. <laughs> And you've got two littlies already? Yes, so Jack's four and Molly will be two. They must just absolutely love having all this area to be able to run around. Yes, they're um, naked and wild and free children, I think. That's <laughs> <laughs> the best way to describe them. Yeah, no, they're great and it's such a beautiful lifestyle for them. They always help with the worms and lots of animals to look after and, yeah, just freedom. <laughs> It's the start of term at the Nature School in Port Macquarie and students are busy catching up after their summer break. Among them are the school's first ever secondary students. The school's just expanded to extend from kindergarten to year seven and the year seven students are in high spirits on their first day. My name's Anwen Pullen. The the thing that most excited me about going to the nature school is it's so much different to other schools. It's like smaller and it's more welcoming and you get res more respect and you get cared for a lot more than being in a massive school with tons of kids. I love it, it's a great way to reconnect with nature. My name is Connor Van Rensburg. What I like about this school, the teachers are very welcoming, they treat you with respect, the lessons are fun and mud is also very fun and there's lots of mud here. Hello, I'm Emma Siossian and I'm meeting some of the first students to study at secondary level at this independent school on the New South Wales mid-north coast, which has a focus on nature and outdoor learning. The nature school intends to keep adding a grade level each year until it extends to year 10 in 2026. 
The head of the school, Catherine Shaw, says families are increasingly looking for something a bit different to the mainstream education model. So for a school that started with 22 students uh, five or six years ago, we're up to 140 students in the school this year and there's a wait list on almost every grade. So the school is full, we're at capacity. I think people are looking, they really are looking for something different and we have such stressed teenagers People are looking for a place where we can embrace what it means to be a teenager, a young person today, without that high pressure. Learning is still the most important thing, but we can do it in a less stressful environment. The amount of time our students spend outside and spend in the real world is quite unique to us. They still have classrooms, multiple classrooms for math, science, English, humanities, but we embrace the rest of the world as our classroom too. A beach can be your classroom. The main philosophy of the Nature School is to deliver the New South Wales syllabus of the standard Australian curriculum in a different way. And the school has also adopted a different model for its secondary program. Our secondary classes will remain small. We think that's a strength of our school, so only 20 students in a year group. So we've really adopted quite a unique middle school model here to ease that transition for students from the single teacher they've had in their primary years. Um, a bit of a step between that and the multiple teachers they might normally experience in a mainstream secondary school. So for our students, they'll have two core teachers, one who takes the math, science, technology load, one who takes the English, humanities and arts load, and then an overlap between those two teachers in the middle of the week. So essentially the students have two teachers rather than seven. How does that work? Do you find you just integrate across different subject areas? Yeah, we really value integration at the Nature School. It's a strength of our programming in primary school and we wanted to hold true to that as we developed our secondary program while still making sure that we meet all the curriculum requirements and ensure that our students can be eligible for the ROSA when they get to year 10. In primary school, our students have those adventure days out in the community all the time. In secondary, they become field studies days, which are really more about students having the opportunity to engage in scientific skills, geographic fieldwork skills in the field, which is why we call them field studies. And we'll be accessing some community assets like the local zoo, the local university and a range of natural habitats for our students. I'm Zulu Britos. The nature school's not really strict and um, it's like a family. My name is Adrian Taylor. It's a very rewarding opportunity to learn at this school like if you make a mistake then the teacher will like gently correct you. Layla Bannon. I was very excited when I found out that they were starting a high school because when I was at my old school the fact of going to high school was scaring me but now that I'm at the nature school the fact of going to high school excited me because the teachers are so kind and caring. Hi, my name is Julian Bird. You make friends like on your first day and it's just awesome to be here. One of the school's Year 7 teachers is Lloyd Godson, who co-founded the Nature School back in 2015. I had the unique opportunity last year to come and work in primary school. That was a bit out of field for me. I normally teach secondary, so I got to come and experience the school after a bunch of years and see how it had grown and get to know how things work here. Um, so I feel pretty honoured to be like one of the founding secondary school teachers now after like five or six years um, following the foundation of the school. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I think a lot of students um, in traditional larger school settings struggle with 
um, shifting around so much in the day and moving between subjects and uh, going from having one classroom teacher to like six or seven. So I think nature school uh, secondary is a really nice uh, transition from primary into secondary. You get to know the students really well, like you're doing primary, you spend a lot of time with them. Catherine Shaw says overseeing the school's growth from its tiny beginnings has been tough but rewarding. Do you look back and think where you started and sometimes just shake your head at where you've come to? <laughs> Once a week. <laughs> and it's been such a beautiful privilege to get to lead this school, to get to be part of it, but it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm so proud of what the whole community at the Nature School has achieved and so, so excited for what still lies ahead. Catherine Shaw, who's the head of the Nature School based in Port Macquarie on the New South Wales mid-north coast, where she spoke to our reporter, Emma Seosian. Before that, Jennifer Nichols brought us the story of husband and wife Rowan and Ellie Watson, who are growing earthworms and loving the farming lifestyle on their property in southeast Queensland. For more on both of those stories and all of the stories you've heard on today's program, head to the RN homepage and hit the Programs tab, where you'll find the Big Country program page. I'm Claire Jasper and I'll chat to you again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.